first thing you remember that scared you? As babies, we all experience new things that may frighten us. The dark, strange people, loud noises, like the sound of a vacuum cleaner, for instance. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you were a little bit older, old enough to have a conscious sense of self and the world around you. What's the first thing that terrified you? I'll tell you what scared me, and you'll think it's silly or you'll think I'm being a smartass, but I'm not. When I was a kid, what scared me was Michael Jackson. For real. I'm not talking about him moonwalking. I'm talking about his performance in the music video Thriller. And not him looking like a zombie dancing with the walking dead in the greatest choreographed piece of musical movement ever put on film. I'll put it out there right now in what should be the least controversial thing I will ever say. Thriller is the greatest music video of all time. But the 14-minute movie version of Thriller opens with this extended prologue that's like a parody of I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Michael Jackson is cast as a lover boy in the 1950s. He gives his date a ring and asks her to be his girl, but then the tone shifts and he warns her that he's different from the other boys. At this point, the full moon comes out from behind the clouds, and Michael transforms into a savage, fur-covered... Well, I guess technically he's a were-cat because of the shape of the eyes and the lengthy whiskers, but as a kid, I didn't distinguish between that and a werewolf. Actually, I think my brother or my mom may have told me it was a werewolf, and that's probably the first time I ever heard that term. Anyway, it's an awesome bit of pop entertainment. Unless you're like three years old, then it's utterly terrifying. My brother was always excited when the video came on MTV. He loved the video, and the song. I was partial to beat it at the time. I loved the look of the street punks and the fake knife fight, but anyway. When Neil said there was a new Michael Jackson video, I ran into the TV room and sat down to watch. And within two minutes, I ran back out of the room, crying and screaming from the sight of Michael looking up, his eyes huge and yellow, his mouth full of jagged fangs, shouting in an unearthly voice, GET AWAY! I cried and shut my eyes, but I could still see those teeth like razor blades and those burning yellow eyes like gas lamps. My mom would comfort me and say that it was just a trick for the video, and she would make Neil change the channel to something else. I would go back into the living room and sit down, and naturally Neil would change the channel back to Thriller, just as the monstrous mid-transformation Michael swiped the air with his hand, now covered in fur and claws. The fear overwhelmed me, and I scrambled for the edge of the living room where the TV was no longer in view. Behind me, I could hear the werewolf snarl and my brother and father laughing at me. Mom shouted for Neil to change the channel, and of course, he did. You know how this goes. I was already burned once, so I was suspicious. I crept slowly back into the TV room, looking at whatever show had replaced the spectacle of horror on the screen. But as soon as I got comfortable... Click, the TV went back to Thriller, and the savage werewolf wearing a letterman jacket chasing that poor girl through the woods. And again, I ran away as the wolf howled and my brother cackled. Over time, I learned to sit in the hallway and listen to the song so I knew when the video was over. I'm not embarrassed that my brother terrorized me with Thriller as a child. 
I'm a little embarrassed that he did it more than once. It was years, actually, before I finally found the courage to watch the whole thing. I grew to love that song and that video, and eventually my brother. I can't say for sure if this early experience with terror informed my affection for werewolves later on in life, but I suspect it might have. I always loved the universal monster characters and their descendants in other media. Dracula and other vampires, Frankenstein's monster and his bride, the mummy, the gill man, and the phantom of the opera, ghosts and witches. But my favorite was always the Wolfman. I love the idea that a normal person, not an old-world noble or a mad scientist, an everyday person like you or me, could live with the curse that when the moon turns full, he changes into a half-man, half-animal creature, devoid of conscience or humanity. That probably explains why Marvel's 1970s horror book, Werewolf by Night, is one of my all-time favorite comics. And after this promo break, I will tell you all about the first installment of this saga from Marvel Spotlight number two. Don't go away. This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. Forcing us to record these reviews as a podcast called The Tomb of Ideas. If you can hear this, please... Contact our families. Call the authorities. Anyone. Tell them we can be found at... Now, now, boys. Let's not give too much away. You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. A proud member of the Cinepunks podcast group. See you there, Tomb Believers! <laughs> Marvel Spotlight number two has a cover date of February 1972, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the on sale date was likely September 21st, 1971. This means the Werewolf by Night character predates nearly all of Marvel's contemporary horror-themed characters, except for the Man-Thing and Morbius the Living Vampire, both of whom were introduced just a few months earlier. The book cost a whopping 25 cents, which was more than usual at the time because the book featured two stories, the lead feature, Werewolf by Night, and then a backup reprint from an old 1950s issue of Venus. I have never read this story nor seen it reprinted anywhere. The cover is by Neil Adams with inks by Tom Palmer, and it's striking in its uniqueness. See, this cover is not a single shot, it's a series of panels like you would find inside the book. 
Imagine the cover divided into thirds. The top third is devoted to the masthead. Marvel Spotlight on Werewolf by Night. The middle third is a series of panels showing a young man beginning the transformation. In the first panel, he's leaning against a tree, putting his hand up to his face and saying, The moon! It's so full! So bright! The second panel is a close-up on the man's face as he notices shaggy fur sprouting from his hands. And I'm starting to change again, he says. The third panel, the man is tearing his shirt loose as fur begins to cover his face and his teeth sharpen. Turning into, he begins. The bottom third is one panel that shows the young man now fully turned into a monstrous creature, growling as he stalks a crowd of youths who seem unaware of the danger they're in. It might be a college campus, not sure. There's text on the bottom of the cover that reads, Night of Full Moon, Night of Fear. I can only think of one other cover that employs this technique of panels to create a story within the cover. That's an issue of Detective Comics that shows Batman holding Robin, who, over the course of five panels, crumbles into dust as if he'd just been snapped away by Infinity Stones. And that cover, too, was drawn by Neil Adams. So, what do I think of the cover? It's Neil Adams, so it's awesome. Simple as that. The bright red background and panel border is eye-catching and evokes blood and gore that might be found within these pages. Might. The biggest note I have is, I wonder how early in the story process the cover was completed. Because, as you will see, once we get into the story, the man who turns into a werewolf on this cover looks nothing like the hero inside. This guy has the 1960s preppy look, sweater and button shirt and everything. He actually looks like Burt Ward's Dick Grayson. That's quite different from the protagonist we're about to meet. So, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the story. Werewolf by Night is plotted by Roy Thomas, scripted by Jerry Conway, penciled and inked by Mike Plug, and lettered by John Costanza. When I passed you in the doorway, well, you took me with a glance. A mugger lurks in a darkened alley, waiting for the next human shape to pass by. But as the mugger leaps out, brandishing a knife at his prey, he finds the food chain reversed, for the shape is no man, but a snarling, fur-covered monster. Alerted by the mugger's scream, a police officer on motorcycle cruises by the alley and spots the werewolf looming over the mugger's body. Unsure whether he has seen an animal or a madman, the cop panics and fires his weapon. The werewolf turns and runs down the alley, but one of the bullets grazes his arm. He leaps down into the river and loses his pursuers in the shadows. He keeps moving, running through the streets and back alleys, longing for the soft earth and crisp air of the forest. With the full moon at his back, the werewolf runs until... Jack Russell wakes from a nightmare, drenched in sweat. This is not the first bad dream he has had. Of late he has often dreamed of the monster, but last night's dream felt so real. Too real. Maybe because there's a fresh scar on Jack's arm where a cop's bullet had slashed the werewolf in the dream. Or maybe the dreams and the cuts are all manifestations of the stress Jack feels at turning 18 years old today. 
Jack's mother calls him down to breakfast with the family. Heading down, Jack and his younger sister, Lissa, witness their mother have a heated argument with the family chauffeur, Grant. The siblings would love to see Grant fired, or worse, but their stepfather, Philip Russell, runs things and defends Grant. Jack is no more fond of his stepdad than the chauffeur, believing they each abuse his mother. But Laura Russell defends her husband as surely as her husband defends his driver. That night, the house fills up with friends and family for Jack's birthday party. But Jack's mom and his friend Terry notice that he looks distracted and sick. Overcome with a violent sensation that something inside him was about to burst, Jack pushes his mother aside and runs from the party, running out into the night air and the big, full moon. He darts into shadows along the side of the garage and catches sight of Grant working on the car's engine. Grant hears something and gets defensive, brandishing a wrench, but there's nothing in the shadows anymore. Jack has run off, in no state to wonder why the chauffeur was fiddling with the car's engine so late at night. Jack runs into the wilderness, feeling an agony burning his mind and body. He finally collapses onto his hands and knees, and at that moment he sees his hand covered in brown fur, his fingernails now sharp claws digging into the mud. He crawls to a puddle and catches a glimpse of his own reflection. But it's not the face of Jack Russell he sees, but that of the inhuman monster that is part man, part wolf. Okay, let's take a break and talk about the first eight pages of the story, Act 1, basically. There's the creatives and the characters, and I'm going to start with the creatives. At this point in the early 70s, Stan Lee was still nominally the editor of Marvel Comics, but Roy Thomas was running the show. The way new characters and concepts were introduced, and Marvel would do a lot of that in this decade, frequently went like Stan would tell Roy, kids are really into kung fu movies now, we need a kung fu character, or the comics code is giving us more leeway for monster characters, come up with something for Dracula and the Wolfman. Then what usually happened was Roy, sometimes accompanied by his wife, would write or plot the first issue to establish the hero, the conflict, the basic themes, and then he would farm it out to one of the other writers in the Marvel bullpen. Thomas said in an interview, and forgive me, I think it was in Back Issue magazine, but I don't recall which volume, Roy said the original working title was I, Werewolf, and it was always supposed to be narrated in the first person, which it is, and I'll come back to that. In the case of Werewolf by Night, Thomas only plotted the first issue and gave it to Jerry Conway to script after they decided on Mike Plug to draw it. This was because, according to Thomas, he didn't like horror stories. He didn't want to write that type of comic. So he drafted the barebones story and hired Conway to flesh it out. And flesh it out, he did. I don't think many people would argue with me for saying that Jerry Conway was the best writer of the Bronze Age of comics. He worked on just about every major character of the big two publishers, and had long, beloved runs on Amazing Spider-Man, Justice League of America, Batman and Detective Comics, and so many others. He famously killed off Gwen Stacy and introduced the Punisher in Amazing Spider-Man, while over at DC he created the second Robin, Jason Todd, and the Batman villain Killer Croc, along with the superhero Firestorm, who some of you may be familiar with if you listen to this network. Jerry Conway's body of work is incredible. However, if you will allow me a brief aside, I am lately becoming more and more enamored with the Bronze Age work of Doug Munch, who happened to write the back half of the Werewolf by Night series starting around issue 20, I think. 
But back to Jerry Conway. He is in top form on Marvel Spotlight number two. Just listen to the narrative captions as I read them from page one. As though in a dream, I found myself walking the mist-moistened street in downtown Los Angeles. Something was crawling within me, raging to be released. My mind felt dull and hazy. I couldn't think. There was a sound from the alley before me. A glow of moonlight seemed to glint on something metal. A knife. The crawling thing within me welled up, and my vision suddenly blurred. Everything went scarlet. And I snarled. As we see throughout this story and leading into the series, the monstrous werewolf is not the villain as one would expect, but the protagonist. That can be a tall order unless the reader feels a connection to the man trapped within the monster. Giving the monster that pathos comes from the first-person narration, Stan Lee's original idea, borrowed and, I would argue, perfected after his creation of the Incredible Hulk. So what kind of young man is Jack Russell? First of all, yes, the protagonist of a werewolf book is named Jack Russell. You may commence snickering because that is all kinds of funny. I am sure if they had thought about it, Roy or Jerry would have second-guessed naming the Wolfman after a notably small terrier. His unfortunate name aside, we can see from the beginning that he's a lot more hip to the 1970s than Neil Adams' character on the cover. Jack has longer ginger hair and sideburns, he wears tight-fitting jeans, and in just two pages, basically, we see that he carries himself with a kind of weariness of the spirit. He's 18 years old and describes himself as a full-fledged hunk of draft bait. He plays cocky and self-assured in front of his kid sister, but inside, he is a wreck, tortured by fear and uncertainty. My favorite little detail, though, is Jack says that he's got some heavy thinking to do, so he drives down to Malibu. For the entire day, he doesn't come back until his party that night. Dude, Jack Russell is totally getting high. I love that little bit. Anyway, even if he wasn't plagued by lycanthropic nightmares, Jack would still have plenty to stress over from his family situation. His stepfather, Philip Russell, who sits at the breakfast table reading the paper and smoking a pipe, is a domineering man. Jack even mocks Philip's insistence that the family sit together for meals, as if the appearance that they're a happy family is more important than actually being one. Then there's the fact that Philip hired a chauffeur who looks like a Dick Tracy villain and allows the man to verbally abuse his wife. Jack matter-of-factly tells his mother not to let Philip beat on her, putting it right up front that Philip is not just verbally and emotionally, but physically abusive as well. And Laura takes it. She makes excuses for it and doesn't even want Jack to judge her husband for it. Okay, this was 1971. It was a different time. Women in Laura's position were not expected to have as much agency to defend themselves. Hell, this type of relationship still goes on today all the time. We know that. But is there more to Laura Russell than just the battered housewife? We'll see in a little bit. The last thing I'll mention before moving on to the second part is how Mike Plug draws the characters. There is a great transition from the close-up of the werewolf at the bottom of page 3 to a close-up of Jack waking up at the top of page 4. The werewolf is shaggy, its muscles taut, its face scrunched up and drooling. Jack bolts up in bed, his hair unkempt, his face drenched in sweat. The long hair and the sheen of wetness is a wonderful carryover from one image to the next. 
Plug excels in the scenes with the monster, bringing energy and a lot of heavy inks to those pages to give the werewolf both mystery and depth. He has a much lighter touch when showing the family at breakfast, but it's worth pointing out that Jack Russell has a pretty well-defined and unique profile. Plug isn't coming from the John Romita school where every hero looks like a Hollywood leading man. No one would confuse Jack Russell for Peter Parker or Steve Rogers or any other hero. Not until we meet Johnny Blaze in the first appearance of Ghost Rider in Marvel Spotlight issue 5, also drawn by Plug. The first transformation scene is a visual delight, but Jerry Conway doesn't let the art do all of the work. The captions on page 8 read as follows. My legs gave out. I felt myself fall forward. Mud ran between my fingers, soaked through the cloth at my knees. My vision blurred, and when it cleared, I saw a thing that made me scream. That's his hand covered in fur, by the way. And in the sudden brilliance of unclouded moonlight, in the reflection of a muddy pool, I saw him for the first time. And I knew. I knew. Thus, we move on to the second part of the story. Now a werewolf, sweat-matted fur covering his whole body, mud caking his frayed but otherwise trendy bell-bottom pants, the creature that was Jack Russell lurches and runs toward the coast. Initially compelled by some dark instinct, the werewolf stalks the rocky beach until he comes upon an old abandoned mansion on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific. As he draws closer to the house, the werewolf realizes it was not instinct that brought him here, but the scent of his enemy, a rogue wolf that, according to newspapers Jack Russell had read, had been terrorizing people on the outskirts of Los Angeles for weeks. Using his savage new strength, the werewolf crashes through the door and into the empty old house. He lets out a fearsome growl and receives one in turn from the mansion's lone occupant, the wolf. With hate in his eyes, the animal leaps down on the werewolf, but the half-human creature manages to hold it back with his more humanoid hands. The werewolf throws the animal back, but it recovers immediately and crouches for another attack. This time it springs, going for the werewolf's throat, but he puts a forearm up. Gnashing and clawing each other, the wolf and werewolf crash through a window and roll down to the edge of the cliff. At last, channeling all his strength and his will to survive, the werewolf heaves the rogue animal over the edge, and it falls to the rocky bluffs below. The werewolf stands, and, bathed in the light of the moon, gives a howl of triumph. At that moment, whatever human consciousness exists in the monster vanishes. Whatever else the werewolf did for the next several hours before the sunrise, only the animals know for sure. The sun's rays reverse the hideous transformation, leaving Jack Russell to pass out bloody and naked on the beach near his family home. Sometime later, Jack is discovered by his stepfather and sister, who help him walk back to the house. While waiting for a private doctor to check him out, Jack notes Lissa's unusual amount of distress. Philip Russell chastises his stepson's selfishness, and informs him that after Jack ran away from his own party the night before, his mother went out looking for him. Somehow, Laura lost control of the car and it crashed. She is currently in the hospital, clinging to life. 
Philip's personal physician, Dr. Allen, examines Jack and gives him a sedative to help him sleep, after telling him not to blame himself for his mom's accident. Just before the drug knocks him out, Jack overhears his stepfather talking on the phone with Grant, the chauffeur. Philip says something about meeting Grant at a warehouse and bringing money. If anything about that sounds suspicious, Jack is too loopy to figure it out. He passes out and awakens in the afternoon. He hurries to the hospital to see his mother, but the desk tells him that Laura Russell is in critical condition and cannot receive visitors. Jack pretends to leave, but snoops around until he overhears a doctor discussing his mom with a nurse, and they mention her room number. Jack sneaks into his mother's room and is horror-struck at the sight of her condition. She beckons Jack to sit by her, and he expresses his guilt over not being there for her. At first, she chides him for feeling sorry for himself, and then she begins to tell Jack about his father, his real father. She can't die without revealing the truth of Jack's lineage, and the dreaded family curse he may be doomed to inherit. Jack tries to settle her down, but she barrels through with her story. She met Jack's father while studying abroad in an unnamed Baltic country. He was a baron, and they moved into his family castle. They gave birth to Jack, and everything seemed so idyllic, but the Baron was a man of secrets. Every month, for three days and three nights, the Baron locked himself away in the tower with only his books on the supernatural as his companion. Laura never saw him during these three days and nights, but when everything else about her life was so perfect, she didn't press the issue. For years, that was how they lived, until one night when Jack was only two and Laura was pregnant with Lissa. A storm raged the countryside, and lightning struck the tower. Later that night, one of the villagers near the castle was walking home when he was attacked by a hideous monster. Believing the man's fate to be the work of neither man nor animal, the villagers came to the Baron's castle to ask for his help, hoping to find some answer in his collection of arcana. Instead, they found the Baron missing, the lightning having broken open the tower the night before. Laura believed her husband killed by the storm, or worse, by the demonic beast that haunted their village. That night, the villagers were hunting for the beast in the woods. Eventually, they found it and recognized it as a savage werewolf from their legends. From her place in the castle, Laura heard the gunshots ring out across the land, never realizing what they portended. Later, the men of the village brought the body back to the castle, but by then, the dead werewolf had reverted back to its original human shape, that of the Baron. Back in the hospital, Jack cannot believe the story he has just heard, or maybe he doesn't want to, because it would explain his recent dreams and behavior all too perfectly. Laura warns him that he may be doomed to carry his father's curse, to transform into a werewolf every month for the three nights of the full moon. Jack asks her if the reason she married Philip Russell was to bury the secret of the Baron. She tells Jack that no matter what he believes, Philip is a good man, and she makes Jack promise not to lay a hand on him. By now, however, the sun has gone down, and the full moon rises above the hospital. Jack doubles over as the transformation takes him. When he looks up with the eyes of the werewolf, his mother Laura is dead. The only human thoughts kicking around in the werewolf's mind is a burning hatred for Philip Russell and the certainty that Grant sabotaged her before the crash. Just then, an orderly enters the room to check on Laura. He gasps at the sight of the werewolf. 
the monster crashes through a window and takes off into the wooded hills, his thoughts on revenge against the two men he believes responsible for his mother's death. And we will stop again right there, which is only two-thirds of the way through the issue, if you can believe it. We have basically got three scenes in this section. There's the werewolf's fight against the wolf, then there's the morning after where Jack learns of his mother's crash, and then there's Laura's deathbed confession slash explanation. The wolf-on-wolf action scene does two things. First, it's the scene where Jack is trying out his new powers, so to speak. We get a sense of his new sensory awareness, his strength, his capacity for violence, and survival instinct. But it also holds off the biggest problem with casting a monster as the protagonist. Werewolves are predators, killers. We pay to see the werewolf stalking its prey and then finishing them off in as gruesome a way as possible. It's hard to root for the hero if he's running around L.A. murdering innocent people. The hero monster needs other monsters to fight, and short of actual inhuman monsters, then at least criminals and evildoers. But we haven't met any of those in the story yet, except for the would-be mugger in the opening scene, and we probably don't want to repeat that situation so quickly. So having the werewolf fight a wild animal like a rogue wolf is a nice compromise for this situation. Then we get the scene where Jack's stepfather finds him on the beach, and this is another chance to showcase what a jerk Philip Russell is. His concern for Jack's welfare disappears as soon as he realizes Jack is physically fine. He assumes, and it's not an unfair assumption to make, that Jack got too wild at his own birthday party and passed out on the beach. It makes sense, especially if Philip has reason to suspect that his son was rocking the ganja. But listen to what Philip says to his daughter Lissa when they find Jack. Blast it, Lissa! Don't stand there gawking! Get inside! Fix him some coffee! And once inside, when Lissa is grief-stricken over her mother's accident, Philip says, She can't hear you, Jack. Your sister's almost hysterical. Well, he doesn't really give her a chance to answer. He shows the same misogyny toward his daughter as he does his wife. And then he goes and lets Jack feel guilty for his mom maybe dying. Father of the year, right? Then we go to the hospital, and I like that we see Jack is not totally passive in his own story. He's resourceful enough to sneak around the intensive care unit until he finds his mom's room. Here we learn the story of Jack's real father, the unnamed Baron. In later issues of Werewolf by Night, we do learn his name and more about him, but for now, it's unimportant. All we know is he's a wealthy landowner, the nobleman of a small village, who locks himself away three nights out of the month to protect people from his terrifying curse. This is standard Wolfman lore going back to the Universal Pictures. We don't learn anything more about the Baron, but I think this vignette tells us a little more about Laura. When she met the Baron, she was a student traveling abroad. That means she already came from money, and being of the time, she probably expected to marry into equal or greater wealth. Despite her education, if we just follow the stereotypes, she was probably destined to be a rich socialite of some kind. The fact that she married into actual royalty and lived in a castle? Well, that's just icing on the cake. Mmm, I don't think cake goes sour or rotten, but imagine the cake goes bad or whatever to play out this analogy. Because her husband is secretly a monster, and she chose willful ignorance of this situation for two years. She could have investigated what he was doing every month for three days and three nights, why he couldn't see her during that time, why he couldn't see anybody. 
That is really bizarre behavior that she should have challenged him on constantly, except she didn't want to spoil her perfect life, and the truth finally came back to bite her. <laughs> Not as hard as a bit the local villager, mind you. <laughs> hey -oh. So Laura came back to the States, mother to one child, pregnant with another, and the keeper of a most dreadful secret. At some point, she marries Philip Russell, and he turns out to be a real sack of shit. But, given the life that she was used to, the life she expected, and her recent traumatic experience, I think I understand why she would suffer his abuses, be they physical or verbal, to avoid as much drama as possible. I don't like it, but I get it. So, the one lingering question I have about Laura is... Did her injuries from the car crash kill her at last, or did she die of fright? Because she's awake, pleading with her son in one panel, and then Jack transforms into the werewolf, and we see her reflected in the monster's eyes, and she's dead. Did the spectacle of her own son becoming that horrible creature, the same creature his father had been, did that push her over the edge, or had she died before the change? It's unclear but I think I prefer the tragedy that she died witnessing the family curse take her firstborn child, and it broke her heart. Mike Plug's art continues to be awesome. The panels where the barren werewolf murders the local carpenter, there's a close-up of the man's horrified face, and in the foreground, the werewolf's outstretched hand. Plug doesn't give the monster spindly fingers. These are big catcher's mint hands. It's like a bear's paw. When the villagers open fire on the beast with their rifles and shotguns, the werewolf doubles over as the tree behind him is pocked with chipped wood from bullets and shells. Really good detail. And then there's the second transformation sequence. Here, Plug takes advantage of the fact that we already know what's happening to make it more fluid and atmospheric, stripping the sequence of panel borders and making it all one montage of Jack changing in the fur above the close-up of the monster's eye. But I love the panel at the top of this page right before the change. It's a headshot of Jack in front of the window, the moon full and huge behind him. Half of Jack's face is in shadows, but we don't lose any detail because they are all illuminated by the moonlight. The physics of this should not actually work because the moon, as a reflected light source, is directly behind him when it should be over his right shoulder based on how it's casting light on him. This sort of thing could show a lack of detail and amateurishness, but it doesn't come off that way. It just feels more moody and tense, and it works for the moment. Okay, we are still chugging along. Let's get to the last act of our story. Something, primal instinct or residual memory, who knows, but something draws the werewolf to the South Street warehouse to wait for his prey. And before long, Grant, the chauffeur who Jack believes killed his mother, shows up for his rendezvous with Philip Russell. Perhaps Grant was already suspicious of a double-cross, because he reacts surprisingly quick when the werewolf attacks. The monster leaps onto Grant's back, but the bulldozer of a man simply flips the creature over onto the ground. He catches a glimpse of the werewolf, but in the dim light of the warehouse, Grant assumes his attacker is wearing some kind of fright mask or costume. He goes on the offensive, enraged that Philip would send an assassin instead of coughing up the $10,000 he owes. He lands punch after punch on the werewolf. 
The werewolf fights back, going for Grant's throat, but he's thwarted. Grant picks the creature up over his head and professional wrestler style throws him into a stack of wooden crates. He looms over the battered monster and gloats about killing Laura, thinking Philip would have thanked him rather than send a punk to stab him in the back. At the sound of this confession, the part of Jack still inside the werewolf feels a renewed hatred for his enemy, coupled with a righteous thirst to mete out vengeance and justice. The werewolf stands and throws himself one final time against Grant. The two of them lock in combat, arms wrapped around each other's throats. For a moment, Grant is getting the better of him, his brutish strength dominating the beast. But then, perhaps a shift of the light, perhaps a smell or a renewed look of savagery in the werewolf's eyes convinces Grant what he had heretofore been unable to accept that he is not fighting some hired punk in a Halloween costume. He's fighting an actual, honest-to-God monster. It ain't a mask, Grant shouts as the rising fear eats away at his strength like acid. Panicking, the man begins to run. The werewolf chases him and overtakes him in no time. The werewolf leaps onto Grant's back, and this time the man cannot flip him over. This time the man is driven down to his knees. The werewolf pulls Grant's head back and plunges his mouth toward the man's neck. (coughs) What exactly happens next, Jack Russell can never know for sure. Perhaps the wolf pushed Jack's personality so deep below that he cannot remember, or perhaps he chose that moment to selectively black out. The next thing he remembers is the sound of someone else in the warehouse calling out Grant's name. Philip walks around the warehouse looking for Grant, shouting out that he brought the $10,000. He never sees the chauffeur's corpse on the ground, nor the werewolf stalking him from the shadows. The wolf in Jack wants to attack, wants to kill this man who surely must be partly to blame for his mother's death. But the part of Jack can't be sure, and he can't let the beast kill his stepfather without being absolutely sure. When Philip steps within feet of the werewolf's hiding place, when the creature could just reach a hand out and end the man's life, that's when Jack recalls the last thing his mother said before she died. She made him swear that he would not raise a hand against his stepfather. Frustrated and bitter, the werewolf allows Philip to leave the warehouse. The man walks out to his car as rain falls over Los Angeles. He drives away as the werewolf runs out into the night and howls at the moon. A howl of rage and pain. The howl of a monster with the soul of a boy who wonders if he has just let his mother's murderer go free. Alright, that is the end of the story, so let's get right to the thing that I hate about this issue. The climactic battle between our hero and the man who maybe killed his mother, this fight sucks. Not the mechanics of the fight, the staging, the blocking, that's all fine. Plug makes sure that the fight is a visceral, physical throwdown. Grant gets his shirt shredded, he's caked in sweat. When he gets his hands around the werewolf's throat, you feel the weight of the two titans trying to get the other to budge. It's tense. Except it shouldn't be. Jack is a freaking werewolf, and he's getting his ass kicked by a chauffeur. And this is a five-page fight. Five pages of the werewolf, the savage monster, getting beaten and choked out by a bigger-than-average but still perfectly human guy. This is like if at the end of the first issue of The Incredible Hulk, the Hulk got into a fight with General Ross and almost lost. 
there's no logic behind this except for the fact that the formula of this story mandates that Jack Russell is the underdog. And I am so sorry for saying it that way. But there is a formula to this story, and it's something I have very strongly conflicting feelings about. Somebody told me once that among the many differences between Marvel and DC Comics is that DC's genre books felt like they were of those genres. If you were reading Jonah Hex or All-Star Western, those books felt like Western tales. If you were reading House of Mystery or House of Secrets or Phantom Stranger, those felt like horror and mystery stories. At Marvel, on the other hand, the genre books of the 60s and 70s, they all felt like superhero stories redressed in genre clothing. Two-Gun Kid was a basic crime fighter story but set in the desert instead of New York. And most of Marvel's horror characters to come out in the 70s had fairly prototypical superhero type stories but with supernatural elements. I think you could probably make the case that Man-Thing and maybe Tomb of Dracula were exceptions to this rule, but Ghost Rider, Son of Satan, Monster of Frankenstein, and definitely Werewolf by Night, these read a lot like Bronze Age superhero stories. And that's not by accident. Roy Thomas said from the beginning that Werewolf by Night was meant to feel like Spider-Man meets I Was a Teenage Werewolf. That's why he tapped Jerry Conway to write the book, because Conway took over Amazing Spider-Man when Stanley left the title. Conway had an ear for this type of character, the kind of pathos it would take to make the monster sympathetic. So, because the werewolf is essentially a brand new superhero, a kid who stumbles onto these fantastic powers, just like Spider-Man or Daredevil or Nova then his origin story has to play out like a classic hero's journey. The hero has always got to be at a disadvantage going into his first fight. He's young, he's untested, he's unsure. He is, and I'm sorry again, the underdog. That is why the savage werewolf with his fangs and his claws and his superior strength gets his ass handed to him for five pages before turning the tables and killing his enemy. There's no in-story logic to it. It is simply a function of the genre. And that drives me a little crazy because today I see that as a problem. But when I was younger, that's the reason why Werewolf by Night became one of my favorite books. I began this podcast talking about the first time I was truly terrified by a sort of werewolf, no less, from Thriller. I would eventually grow to love werewolves and vampires and monsters, but of the more refined variety, I think. As I said at the top of this episode, it was the universal monsters that attracted me, but they rarely, rarely actually scared me. I liked the idea that they were scary monsters, that they were rooted in tales of terror, but they were... sanitized, I guess? I don't like George Romero zombie movies. I don't like body horror or torture porn or even very many serial killer movies. That brand of horror has rarely appealed to me. There are maybe five horror movies that I still love and re-watch every couple of years. The First Halloween, An American Werewolf in London, Alien, The Shining, and the Frank Langella version of Dracula. I would hardly call myself a connoisseur of horror cinema. I've seen maybe 30 or 40 total. Honestly, I've probably read more horror comic books and novels than seen movies. And there's enough of a psychological remove for me when it comes to reading horror that it doesn't affect me that much, with just a few exceptions, thanks to Stephen King and Peter Straub. 
if DC had published Werewolf by Night, well, first of all, I don't know if it would have worked. I don't know if you could maintain the horror roots of the Wolfman tropes if the monster is your protagonist. But maybe they would have found a way, like they did with Swamp Thing. But I don't know if that would have appealed to me when I was younger. The first Werewolf by Night comics I read were issues 20 through 24, I think. They fell into my lap for a brief period along with about a dozen issues of Tomb of Dracula and some Ghost Rider books. I was a young teen at the time, very early into my comic book reading, and I probably didn't absorb the stories so much as flip through the pages and admire the art. But they did make enough of an impression on me that ten years later, I got both of the black and white essential Werewolf by Night volumes and devoured them faster than I have ever read any other series. And I think what I loved about it then was that it felt so accessible, so easy and breezy, because it was a superhero saga wearing the costume of a horror story. That's what I loved about it in my teens and twenties. Today, though? Well... I wish the book tried a little harder to subvert my expectations for the protagonist. The formula that made it so accessible back then now reveals a glaring problem with the story's climactic third act. I can suspend my disbelief for the existence of a werewolf, but not for the werewolf getting pummeled by a normal guy when it should just rip his throat out. Giving the werewolf more ambiguity to its motives might have raised the tension, because then you're never sure what it's capable of. Could the werewolf attack and hurt an innocent person, and how would Jack Russell have to deal with that? How would we as the readers feel about that? But I'm not sure if they could pull off that ambiguity without ditching the first-person narration, and that's crucial to the voice, the personality of this book. I guess approaching the werewolf like Len Wein and Bernie Wright's and Swamp Thing might have more appeal to me as a reader today, but then it wouldn't have been the werewolf by night that it was, the werewolf by night that brought me such joy as a young reader. There's not much more to say about the last couple pages of the book. Mike Plug's art, for the most part, is really great throughout, as is Jerry Conway's prose. We're left with some interesting questions to still be resolved concerning Philip's possible role in his wife's death, and whether or not Jack will keep the promise that he made on his mother's deathbed. And there's the looming dread of the curse hanging over Jack, that for three nights out of every month, he is destined to change into the creature that men call werewolf. I mean, that's a pretty horrifying fate, and that's scary enough for me. When I passed you in the doorway, well, you took me with a glance. I should have took that last bus home, but I asked you for a dance. Now we go steady to the pictures. I always get chocolate stains on my pants. And my father, he's going crazy. He says I'm living in a trance, but I'm dancing in the moonlight. Caught me in its spotlight Dancing in the moonlight On this long hot summer night FW Presents is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can support the show by liking and sharing on Facebook and Twitter or leaving a comment on the website post at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Please take a moment to visit the iTunes page for FW Presents and leave us a nice glowing five-star review. Thanks for listening, and don't let the monsters get you. 
minute spotlight It's alright Dancing in the moonlight On this long hot summer night 